Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, and this is increment 131, Archiarius kata ten taxen Melchizedek, kata ten taxen Melchizedek. And that's the Greek phrase that you'll find in the title next to increment 131 in the printed page. And we're going to reiterate something from increment 130 to start off with today and then continue in, well, kind of a new way of teaching, but not, where we kind of circle and circle and circle until we get smaller and smaller circles, till we get to the heart of the matter that we're dealing with here as Christ being completed as a great archpriest. So, Father, we pray that you'll allow the mind of Christ to be in us the mind that reasons with the scripture and not with human viewpoint. And we thank you for this privilege. We thank you for another opportunity for the Holy Spirit to make intelligible what the scripture says about Jesus Christ and also to make us able with the eyes of our heart to see Jesus and therefore to be conformed one increment further today into his likeness. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Reiteration, first of all, from I-130, increment 130. We've landed squarely, as I said before, in the historical position of the recipients of the Hebrews homily, the initial readers and hearers of this homily. What happens if they disobey the Son and dishonor him through an act of apostasy? Well, the answer to that question is that as in the case of the Galatians, who are on the verge of defection and desertion of Jesus Christ and of God who called them by the grace of Christ and in danger to moving to a cursed gospel which is not good news at all, and by submitting to ritual circumcision, Christ would then become of nothing of no meaning to them. He would come to mean nothing to them. He would be of no effect or of no profit to them. Galatians 5.2, that's tragic enough. And they will have drifted off course. Galatians 5.4, kind of connecting with Hebrews 2.3, drifted off course from grace and thus will have effectively lost the experience of salvation in this evil age an experience that is only had by continued faithfulness to Jesus Christ and to his word in the power of the Spirit. Now, as I said in I-130, it may seem that I'm writing around the subject here, but in fact, I'm getting to the heart of the matter by doing this. And we did, first of all, or the last thing I guess we did in the last increment is to enumerate the general elements of the Christ event, all that the Christ event means, and I've reduced it just for the purpose of today's message to nine features or nine elements of the Christ event. We'll enumerate those general elements now. One, the incarnation of the eternal word, also known as the eternal son made flesh. Two, the earthly life long obedience of the Son made flesh, obedience that culminated 
in three, the passion of the son, the crucifixion and the death of the son, the offering of himself without blemish to God through the eternal spirit. Four, his burial, and then five, his resurrection from the dead, when the God of peace brought up our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, out of the realm of the dead, for God had regard to the blood of the covenant, which was Jesus' blood and his sacrificial death. Sixth, Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, which were many and are often called Christophanies in the scripture. Seventh, his ascension and entry through the torn veil into the heavenly holy of holies through his own blood. Eighth, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, also a general feature of the Christ event. Ninth, he was crowned as the great king of the heavenly Jerusalem and designated a priest, Hebrews 5.6, or archpriest, Hebrews 5.10, for the age, like Melchizedek. But is this a correct chronology? Did these features, were they listed in a proper chronological order? We may or not, may not answer that in full today or tonight, but did items 1 to 9 happen in that order? Before answering that question, Hebrews 5, 7, and 8 have specifically to do with item 2 of the above list, the earthly lifelong obedience of the eternal son made flesh. Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, another way of saying during his earthly life, he offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications with a strong outcry and tears to the one who was able to save him out of the realm of death and was heard because of his reverential obedience. Now that word there doesn't say obedience, but the meaning of the word reverence or because of his piety or reverence means his reverential obedience. That theme is carried on into verse 8. Although he was the son, that's the son of Hebrews 1-2, the one in whom God spoke with finality in these last days. Although he was the son, meaning the eternal son, he learned this obedience through suffering. He learned obedience, this particular obedience, through suffering. This earthly lifelong obedience of the Son led to Jesus becoming the source of age-abiding salvation to all who obey him, Hebrews 5.9. This meant that through suffering, Jesus became complete as the founder of age-abiding salvation by becoming the living source and cause of that salvation. The Son, in whom God spoke with definitive finality in these last days, Hebrews 1-2, is the eternally begotten Son of God, as he's called in John 3.16. Though he was this Son during the days of his flesh, he was 
as the apostle of our confession, one sent on a mission in Hebrews 3.1, in the weakness of human flesh, because God willed to make the founder of our salvation complete through suffering. Again, that's Hebrews 2.10. Consequently, for Jesus to be made complete as our great archpriest, it would have to be through the kind of suffering that would result in our sanctification. It would have to be the kind of suffering that would constitute the expiation of our sins and the satisfaction of God that could not be brought about by animal sacrifices, no matter how many millions be offered and how many kinds. So there was an understanding at the time of the writing of this homily, an understanding that's in danger of being lost in our current culture, that sons would become mature only through what they suffered. Consequently, fathers would naturally discipline their sons from time to time with a hopefully measured imposition of discipline. Nor would fathers spare their sons the necessary suffering by which they would become mature adults, men. To spare them this would be to rob them of their development into maturity as responsible adults. And that's not love. Love does not spare a child the necessary suffering to become mature and to become responsible adults. You see it all over the place today. Grown men that have never learned responsibility to be mature men, adults, real adults. So to spare the son the necessary suffering that leads to maturity is anything but loving them. Every son under this understanding would undergo some form of discipline from an earthly father or sometimes from a loving guide if the father was out of the picture. Now, in the Spartan warrior culture and many other warrior cultures, this discipline was taken over by military men in which the young men were in the Spartans' case, for example, trained in the agona or the school of hard knocks, as it were, and prepared to be men, be prepared not only to be men, but to be soldiers and warriors and leaders. So the same is true of the Lord. He disciplines every son whom he receives, according to Hebrews 12.6. And in Revelation 3.14 and 19, skipping over a little bit there, Revelation 3.14 and 19, to the angel of the church at Laodicea, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, said this, I reprove and discipline everyone I love. Now, if we don't, if we say we didn't know the scripture, or the power of God, like the Sadducees. We might be tempted to say, yeah, but 
God would certainly not discipline his unique eternal son. Jesus, the eternal son, the radiance of God the Father's glory, the stamp of the Father's very divine substance, the one whom God appointed heir of all things. Certainly this son wouldn't have to learn obedience through suffering. But the scripture explicitly states here, and also at the heart of Romans, God did not spare his only eternally begotten son, but freely handed him over on behalf of us all. And if he's done that, how will he not freely give us all things? And so the scripture explicitly states here also in Hebrews and the chronicles of Jesus' life and death in the gospels certainly narrated that though he was the eternal son made flesh, that he not only learned obedience through the things that he suffered, but that his obedience culminating with the death of the cross, the death of the cross, was meritorious. His obedience was, listen carefully to this, meritorious to the degree that it merited salvation for the whole human race and deliverance from slavery to corruption for the whole universe of proportionate created being. That's how significant Jesus' obedience was. His obedience, though he were the son. And that's from, there's a little play on words here. It learned is e-mathen, and suffered is e-pathen. He learned obedience, or we could even say demonstrated what obedience is through the things that he suffered, Hebrews 5.8. And so his obedience, though he was the son or though he were the son, meaning the eternal son, his obedience resulted in him becoming the source of age-abiding salvation to all. And becoming the source of age-abiding salvation for all who obey him, and as we've seen in two or three previous increments, that means ultimately all, especially of those who obey or believe in him. So I'll say that again. Becoming the source of age-abiding salvation for all who obey him, meaning ultimately all humanity, especially of those who obey or believe in him, he was then given the honor of being an archpriest for the age by the same God, his father, who had said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Quoted in Hebrews 1.5 and that from Psalm 2.7. So it's understandable if we want to say, and I have before, and it's not wrong to say this, but it might be understandable if we want to say that this today that he's speaking about here is a reference to Psalm 2-7, that the today is the eternal day in which God eternally begets the Son. However, 
although there is such a today, the eternal day in which the Son was eternally begotten, so he has no beginning or end, the reference to Psalm 2-7 specifically pertains to the declaration of the Father of Jesus to be the great king of the heavenly Jerusalem in future world. In other words, that formula, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is a royal formula, a formula in which one accedes to a throne or ascends to a kingly throne. And in Jesus' case, it was the Father declaring Jesus to be, this is the year of the great king, to be the great king of the heavenly Jerusalem in future world on the heavenly Mount Zion, which meant that he was designated to be king of kings. Now this squares with Romans 1.4, which says that Jesus was designated son of God, meaning king, by right and reason, and on the occasion of his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was, of course, all along the eternal son of God. He was eternally begotten in the eternal today. But here in Hebrews and also in Romans, Jesus was declared or designated as God's son on the same today of his accession to the royal throne where he was declared and designated to be, again, king of kings. That means king even over all the kings of the earth in Psalm 2 and the peoples who conspired against him and his father, Yahweh and his anointed one in Psalm 2. So there was and is the eternal begetting of the eternal son. And there was the beginning or the begetting rather of the son, which is in essence his coronation with the crown of the glory of kingship. This is dealing in Hebrews with his accession to the throne where he is declared to be king of the universe, king of kings, king of the heavenly new Jerusalem, which is the sort of, we could say, the capital of the new universe. Now for us, and I speak specifically of Tetelus thy phalanx in this case, though of course I'm not only speaking to you, this is the year of the great king. That's just, we like to name a year, year by year. Much is to be made of this, however, because in Hebrews, in the beginning of the central section, 7, 1 to 10, 18, the homilist makes much of the fact that this Melchizedek, to whom Jesus is compared and contrasted, this Melchizedek is of whom Jesus, the Son of God, is designated to be a priest for the age like Melchizedek. This Melchizedek is also a king. The emphasis is twofold, in fact. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And he was the king of Salem, which means peace. This priest of El Elyon, as the Hebrew has it, God Most High, was also most emphatically a king. And Jesus is most emphatically a priest for the age. He is an archpriest for the age like Melchizedek, as we're going to see in Hebrews 5.10. Because Jesus is the great king of saving righteousness, and the king of the heavenly 
Jerusalem or Jerusalem, the city of future world in which we will all have the experience of messianic peace. All humanity in all of its times will have that experience. So Hebrews is all about completion, as we've said many times before. <clears throat> Jesus was made complete as an archpriest by his act of self-sacrificing love, which he enacted at the juncture of the ages. Hebrews 9.26 compared with John 3.16, an act of love. <clears throat> the argument as to when Jesus became an archpriest, I'll say that again. The argument of when <clears throat> or as to when Jesus became an archpriest or our great archpriest ought rather to be an argument not about when he became an archpriest, but when he was completed as an archpriest and thus when he was officially designated to be the archpriest for the age by God his Father. Though he could never be an archpriest of the order of Aaron, not being from the priestly tribe of Levi, Jesus nevertheless acted in a distinctly priestly way during the, way, the days of his flesh, offering prayers and supplications, for example, during his time in a mortal body. But the question of when is not as important as the reality Jesus was declared a priest for the age like Melchizedek. In other words, what's really important is that he was designated a priest for the age by the, uh, according to Melchizedek, or basically we could say just like Melchizedek. Melchizedek, incidentally, it's my view that Melchizedek was not Jesus himself or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, but a type. Just as Adam was not Jesus, but a type. Or we could call it an anticipation of the coming one. Adam was an anticipation of the coming of a final Adam. The first Adam was an anticipation as we know from Romans 5.14b, Adam prefigured the one to come. Similarly, it could be said that Melchizedek as a priest to the Most High God prefigured the priest for the age who was to come, and that is through Abraham. The important thing is not so much, again, when Jesus was designated as such, although that is important. It's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that we have him as our great archpriest, as did the first hearers of this homily. Moreover, it is one thing to act as a priest, as Jesus did, both in the days of his flesh and, more importantly, in his sacrificial death. Now, as a Levitical priest, Jesus didn't act like a priest. In fact, he referred people, go to the priest and show him that you've been healed. Go to the priest and show him that you've been cleansed, because I'm not that priest. The priest is over here, and he's in Jerusalem, or he's in a place that you have to go see him. So, even though 
the, so the important thing is that Jesus is now a priest and is through the age a priest after the order of Melchizedek, or we could basically say just like Melchizedek. Now, Jesus was designated as archpriest for the age, and this evidently occurred and was concurrent with the occasion of his exaltation when he was completed as great archpriest by having entered through the veil into the Holy of Holies, having obtained age-abiding redemption for us. In other words, though Jesus Christ's sacrifice was finished when he said finished on the cross, his action as priest was not completed until he entered the heavenly holy of holies. Some would say by his own blood. Others would say with his own blood. Now that's where a controversy happened one day, and I could tell you more about it, but I don't want to right now. NB, that means nota bene. That means note this well. When I say NB in caps, that's what I mean in the notes. There's age-abiding salvation. We just studied that in Hebrews 5.9. There's age-abiding archpriest. We're looking at that now in Hebrews 5.6 and 5.10 and then many times later. There's this priest ever living or through the age to make intercession for us. There's age-abiding redemption in Hebrews 9.12. And there's such a great salvation in Hebrews 2.3, which is an age-abiding and universal, we could argue, salvation. Now, once again, as I said in the last increment, there's a strong linkage between Hebrews 2.10 and Hebrews 5.9. So let's look at Hebrews 2.10. The PT says there, for in the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, because of whom and through whom all things exist, should make the founder of their salvation complete through suffering. Ultimately, that suffering by which Jesus was completed as great archpriest was the suffering of death, which is the wages of sin. For every human being in the world over all of time and through all of history. That suffering, along with his passage through the heavens by his own blood, we'll say it that way for now, dia or by his own blood, into the Holy of Holies was the act that completed him as the priest or archpriest. Hebrews 5.6 says priest. Hebrews 5.10, the PT gets very daring and says archpriest, even though that's not what Psalm 110.4 says. So he pulls an interpretive mood, move rather, that's guided by, you guessed it, the Holy Spirit. So the suffering along with his passage through the heavens by his own blood into the Holy of Holies finally completed him as the priest or archpriest like Melchizedek. Again, the declaration and designation by the voice of God the Father 
which we hear in Scripture in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 19, as we hear it in Matthew 3, 17 and 17, 5, and also in John 12, a voice of God. It's a voice that no doubt reverberated throughout the heavens, and it must have made, been made in association with Jesus' coronation at the right side of the majesty in the heavens. Jesus was completed, and Hebrews is all about his completion and ours in him and the solidarity of all humanity in him and Jesus' own completion in solidarity with all of humanity and, in fact, with all of creation. Jesus was completed. Perfected is okay, but completed is the real issue here. Completed as great archpriest and as the source of age-abiding salvation slash redemption. However, though his self-offering was completed on the cross, John 19.30, his action as priest was not completed until he passed through the heavens into the Holy of Holies by his own blood. Now, here's where we're going to get a little tricky. I'm going to ask you a question. It has to do with what we might call the reliteralization in heaven. And I'm just going to leave that term hanging in the air, reliteralization. Hebrews 12:24 says that, quote, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Let me ask you right off the bat, is this Mount Zion a literal or figurative mountain in future world? Is this city a figurative, metaphorical city or a real and literal, we could say, city? in future world, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, figurative, holograms, or real angels in festal gathering. Verse 23, and to the community of the firstborn registered as citizens of the heavens, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of the justified made complete by glorification. To the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Here comes a challenge with a series of questions. There is a kind of startling literalism used here. There is a literal Mount Zion in future world. Now, it'll be transformed and virtually unrecognizable to the Mount Zion of our own time. There is a literal city in future world, a literal heavenly Jerusalem, probably will be somewhat unrecognizable also in comparison to the present Jerusalem, but it is a literal heavenly city. There are literally countless angels, or we could say there are countless literal angels. And the celebratory atmosphere of a party gathering of extreme generality. The general assembly here means an assembly of extreme generality. That means if you were propelled into future world, you'd see a universal gathering. You'd see everything gathered from the past into the future and redeemed. So there is in this place that we've come to a gathering of extreme generality, or we would call that universality. 
The community of the firstborn is literally there, literally there in future world, as is God the judge of all. He is literally there. And the God, the judge of all, who evidently has justified all, because God is the God who judges by justifying. There are the spirits of justified people. There they are, having been made complete by glorification. So completed justified people are glorified people in literal resurrection bodies. They're there. And there is literally there Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, who is God and man. That covenant is earlier in this epistle called the better covenant, Hebrews 7.22, and later it's called the everlasting covenant or the age-abiding covenant in Hebrews 13.20. Now, if all those things are literal, let me ask you something. Let me just add, now just, this might be shocking to some of you. Are we to assume that the sprinkled blood of Jesus is not literally there if everything else is literally there? That's just a question. I'm not answering it. Here's another question. Is heaven a place of metaphorical reality or of literal, literal reality? And if a literal reality, is it an unearthly literality? A literality, yes, but an unearthly one. one of which we are unable to conceive in our present state. You can imagine it all day long. And you can read stories of people that went there and came back all day long. And you can watch movies about the same thing. But here's a third question. Was Abel's blood, his own literal blood, as it spoke to God from the ground where it had been poured out, now, we don't say his blood literally spoke, but it was his literal blood that God saw in the crime scene. And he said, that speaks to me. Just like blood and the DNA of blood would speak to a crime scene investigator. It speaks to God about something. It's eloquent. It's literal blood, though. It's Abel's blood spilled on the ground by Cain. So, was it the blood that Abel spilled when he offered a lamb? Or was it the blood that Cain spilled, which is Abel's own blood? Now, those are all things we're going to handle down the road. And here's another. Did Jesus actually enter the real, heavenly, holy of holies with his own literal blood or a sample of it to sprinkle against the heavenly mercy seat? 
enough blood to sprinkle against the real heavenly mercy seat? And did he, by doing this, finally complete the priestly act by which he was completed as great archpriest for the age? That's a question. I'm not going to give the answer. I know that the blood of Christ speaks of a dozen things from propitiation to expiation to redemption to reconciliation to rectification to sanctification to purification of sins to the satisfaction of God's justice and to the ultimate summing up of all things in Christ, the universal impact of the cross. The blood of Christ means all that. I wouldn't take away from that in a billion years. But when I ask, was there real blood enough to sprinkle against the heavenly mercy seat, and did Jesus do this? I'll tell you what I think without answering the question. I don't doubt it as strongly as I once did, only because of not literal so much as a re-literalization of things in heaven. A real river coming from a real throne, real living water, real, 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 literal, 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 a re-literalization into a heavenly literality that is not conceivable to people on earth and to any of us in our present mortal state. Something to think about. If we don't have something to think about that we already haven't nailed down, that means we're going to grow. So I'll leave it there. I think heaven holds re-literalized realities that mortal eyes have never seen, mortal ears have never heard, earthly imaginations have never envisioned Now, let's get back. I don't want to say back down to earth because we're not going back down to earth. We're just going to another place in heaven here. The section we've been concerned with, Hebrews 5, 1 to 10, goes like this. I'll read it again. Every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act in behalf of other human beings and things that pertain to God and who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray since he himself experiences weakness in many ways. And because of this weakness, which sometimes leads to sin, just as he offers sacrifices for the sins of the people, he must also do so for himself. And no one takes this honor on himself, the honor of archpriest, but is called by God, just as Aaron was. Similarly, the Messiah did not promote himself to be archpriest. On the contrary, the one who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, also said in another place, You are a priest for the age, just like Melchizedek. Notice it says, Notice that it says, You are a priest, Hierus. In the days of his flesh, he, Jesus, offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications with a strong outcry and tears to the one who was able to save him out from the realm of death and was heard because of his reverential obedience. Although he was the son, 
He learned this obedience through suffering. And being made complete, he became to those who obey him the source of age-abiding salvation. Since, verse 10, he was declared by God, archpriest. He doesn't say priest like Psalm 110.4 says, Psalm 109.4 Septuagint. He says he was declared by God archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. Now, as we close, I want to just go very briefly to Genesis 14 just to show you and land for a moment on the places where Melchizedek is mentioned. He's mentioned in Psalm 110.4, which is cited in 5.6 and cited with a little bit of an accommodation in verse 10, a little bit of an adaptation in verse 10 by the Spirit-led author. But in Genesis 14.17, we have the first mention all the way through verse 20 of this Melchizedek, whose name is King Malki of Righteousness, Zedekah. So note the PT's interpretive move here from priest to archpriest. Jesus, an archpriest like Melchizedek. Melchizedek first appears, and I want to just do this as, by way of suggestion, in Genesis 14, 17, my translation from the Greek text. Now Abram, having returned from the defeat of Kodologomor, looks like Keterleomer or some other thing in English transliteration, but Abraham, Abram, having returned from the defeat of Kodologomor, that's C-H-O-D-O-L-L-O-G-O-M-O-R, Kodologomor, and the kings, and that's the Hebrew Melech, the kings, Abraham had just defeated the kings. The Hebrew word, Hebrew word, is Melech. You'll notice a little bit of a suggestion of Melchizedek in that. Melech, or king. So Abram, having returned from the defeat of Kodologomor and the kings, Hebrew Melech, who were with him, the king, another word now, Melech used a second time, Melech two, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sawe, which is Hebrew Shava, which is a hollow or a plain near Salem. This was a flat open plain of a king, Melech three, third time Melech is used meaning king. So it's a valley of kings, as it were. So then Melchizedek, well, let's back up. Now Abram, having returned from the defeat of Kodologomor and the kings, Melech, who were with him, the king, Melech, of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, which is near Salem, a city. This was the flat open plain of a king, Hebrew Melech, says the scripture. Then Melchizedek, Hebrew, Malki, Zedek, T-S-E-D-E-Q. Malki, Zedek, king of righteousness. Zedekah is righteousness. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread loaves and wine. Sound familiar? Now he was a priest, 
of God Most High. That's El Elyon in the Hebrew. And in the Greek text goes on to say in verse 19, and blessing Abram, this is Abram before he received his new name, Abraham. Blessing Abram, he said, blessed be Abram to God Most High. That is, he's blessed to God. God considers him blessed, who created the heaven and the earth. Blessed be Abram to God Most High, who created the heavens and the earth. That's a reference to Hebrews 2.10, by the way. And verse 20, and passed, or praised rather, praised be the God Most High, El Elyon, who has delivered up your enemies as subjects to you. And he, that's Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. That is a tenth of the spoils of his military victory. He and his 318 trained cowboy commandos. Everything little boys liked to be, at least when I grew up in the 50s, was either a cowboy or a soldier. That's exactly who Abraham had with him, cowboys and commandos. He trained them. They pulled a night raid. They rescued all the hostages from Sodom. The king of Sodom came out and wanted to give him a reward. Abraham said, keep it and place it somewhere in a treasury where the sun doesn't shine, something like that. I wouldn't take a shoe latchet from you, etc. Then Melchizedek came out, and that was a different story. So in Psalm 110.4, Psalm 109.4 of the Greek text, the passage cited in Hebrews 5.6, you the father said to Jesus, are a priest for the age just like Melchizedek, evidently after the son not only accomplished redemption on the cross by the self-offering on the cross and then his resurrection and his exaltation, but there was something he did between going to the heavens and finally sitting down that caused God to call him a priest forever. And it was event apparently the completion of his act as a priest in the Holy of Holies. So, in 5.10 of Hebrews, in closing, the PT, since he, the son, was declared by God archpriest. Please notice the move, the daring but creative and no doubt spirit-guided move that the PT makes here. Not just priest this time in Hebrews 5.6. But it's an interpretive move to say that Psalm 110.4, LXX 109.4, God is speaking of archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. Archpriest is used instead of priest. This is a spirit-guided interpretive move. Now, I'm going to close with a ringer. Here's a test. Have you had a hard time following today's increment, 131, or perhaps following the previous increment, also 130? Then maybe it's time for the kind of tune-up that happens in Hebrews 511 to 620. I'm almost tempted to draw a smiley face in my notes at that conclusion. 
So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity, and we pray that indeed the word will be in every way and in many ways profitable to all of us who have received it today, and may the Holy Spirit make it profitable beyond what a man can do, make it intelligible beyond what a PT can do, and make it applicable to a life of joy and strength in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.